1895, the state of Ohio had only two automobiles. And wouldn't you know it, they collided. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows what kind of collision we're going to have in the days ahead. If you dare vote for a decree that God finds abominable and murderous, you will answer to him. God's curse is upon you. How dare you? How dare you? defy him. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. When is the time for justice? The time is now. I'm tired of waiting for incremental solutions that never make any increments and never bring solutions. So when is the time for justice? It's now. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. If the court in a nation is the highest authority, then you've found a God. If the people are the highest authority, then you've found another God. If, if there's no transcendent law governing over this nation or any other nation, then you've found another God. It's never too early to learn that the government is a greedy piglet that suckles on a taxpayer's teat until they have sore, chapped nipples. Take the guns first, go through due process second. Please clap. Just as the church has an obligation to be Christian, just as the family has an obligation to be Christian, just so the school has an obligation to be Christian, and the state, and your calling, and the school, every area of life must recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and for your enjoyment. Jesus is king, no neutrality, no exile, and there is no surrender. My name is Jason. I'm with my friend Jordan and my other friend John here in the studio. Howdy, howdy. You guys doing okay? It's about to get social in here. But not socialistic. Socialistic. Don't yeah. get it twisted. There is a difference. <laughs> well, if you didn't already pick up, I guess you would read this on the title description. <laughs> but we are talking about social justice today. Wow, social justice. Boy, I don't know if you guys like that word or not, that phrase. I, I mean... Snowflake alert. I, I, I hear tell, Pastor, that you are also on social media. Yes, I am social. You dirty communist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Words that mean something. That adjective is allowed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Words, words mean something. We're going to talk about what they mean, why they mean it, why this is God's world. Jesus owns the dictionary. But we're going to get to a lot of that a little bit later. First, thank you all for sharing the episodes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening, for the encouragement. Um, last episode was was great. I've never seen so many many comments and likes and shares, and it's been really encouraging. Yeah, it's a blessing, especially because for us, I mean, th this is a ministry of, of the church, Cross and Crown Church here in Northern Virginia. So our, our aim is to teach a faith for all of life, and this is the one, one of the ways we do that is getting content out there 
And we want to talk about issues that are important. We want to define our terms. But last episode was a big one. It was a whopper. It was. And there was some interesting feedback. Yeah. The Theonomy episode. I guess that's what it's been called. The yeah. Theonomy episode. Oh. The Theonomy episode. We talked about God's law, why God's law is important, why it matters, why it's biblical, all that stuff. And we even talked with well, Todd pa- Friel. Paging Todd Friel. Todd Friel. Paging Phil Johnson. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd love to discuss this with them, frankly. I, I would love an opportunity well, I just to hope that. someone informs them. Yeah, please Whether do. it's us or someone else. Somebody. Um, <laughs> that was just wrong. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the stuff that was said, hopefully that you know we cleared a lot of that up. I think, um, but you know they're brothers in Christ. We want right. to we want to um, honor like, them, just like Joel McDermott. Exactly, and that's exactly what we said last week. Is like we don't hate these guys. Right. We think we think that they're brothers, but there's also a difference between disagreeing with one another in Christ and then completely like demonizing and and uh, slandering brothers. Right. Like, at least accurately, accurately represent the person that you are opposed to ideologically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually matters that you try and understand what people mean. And that's what one of the things we're going to be talking about today. What do people mean when we say social justice? What do people mean? Yeah. Defining your terms. Well, before we get into that, though, we want to give an update on SB 13. Yes. SB 13 is the abolition bill, abolition of abortion in the state of Oklahoma. And we talked about a little bit last week, but we want to give you sort of an update on what's happening. And believe it or not, the Christians are holding it up. That's right. That's right. Uh, Just like we were talking about last week, we still have held up the um, head of the committee that the bill has to go through, who is a Southern Baptist. He does not want to hear it saying that it is unconstitutional. He's a pro-lifer, right? And he is a pro-lifer. He is a Republican conservative pro-lifer who runs on a pro-life campaign and uh, he's holding it up, saying that it's unconstitutional. He he wants to agree essentially with the Roe versus Wade decision instead of defy it, which is which is really really sad. So first of all, you don't actually have to obey man; you can obey God. Right. Amen. We can just defy Roe versus Wade. But there's also another aspect of this where it's like Roe versus Wade is never going to be overturned unless you actually oppose it, and it goes to the courts again. Right. So how are you ever going to do that? Unless you actually attempt to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And you and you get these justices that are on the Supreme Court saying, look, it's precedent. We're not going to overturn it. And I mean, they're telling us that right, as they're being appointed. Exactly. But precedents are set at some point in time. So we can reset the precedent. Yeah. You know, even legally speaking, I don't even think you have to overturn it with Roe versus Wade. I think the states can essentially defy the federal government and uphold justice with or without the federal government. And what he's saying essentially is that he's concerned that when this bill, if it is passed and it will be struck down by the Supreme Court and then all of the pro-life regulation regulations that have been put in place will be put in jeopardy. Is that not what his argument is? Right, exactly. So there's all these different pro-life regulations that are on the books in Oklahoma and so many other states. Right, but it doesn't actually undo that just because it's because it's not going to pass if there's an appeals court process. So this whole, it's a facade because it's, they're thinking they've made all this progress 
Right. And oh, suddenly, you know, we're going to undo the progress. Right. And there's actually a line in the language of the bill, meaning that the whole bill has to be in effect if it passes, meaning you can't have this kind of line item taken and leave it sort of um, position with the bill. Either it passes and there's the abolition of abortion or it doesn't and you don't get anything. So there's really not even an accurate claim that these pro-life regulations would be repealed. But I don't know why we're even clinging on to these pro-life regulations in the first place. I would highly encourage everybody to start doing a little bit of research on uh, the actual Roe versus Wade case. One of the pro-life, I'm sorry, pro-choice arguments in favor of abortion was that the pro-life state of Texas, which is where Roe versus Wade originated Mm -hmm. in the state courts, was that the the state of Texas did not treat human life as human life under their own pro-life regulations. So why should the Supreme Court? Right. I mean, like the pro-life state, like they used pro-life regulationist legislation to actually make abortion legal throughout the entire United States. So what we have in effect are Christians who maybe they mean well, (laughs) I don't know. But let's say they do mean well. Let's say they mean well, and they genuinely don't like abortion. The problem that I have, especially when you consider the the Baptists, the, you said Southern Baptists, right, John? They are essentially, they have preached for forever, just preach the gospel. We don't have to mess around in politics. And then suddenly they're experts in jurisprudence. Right, exactly. How does that work? Right. <laughs> and, and you bring up the, the Baptists in Oklahoma. So there's this... Um, this group of Baptists in Oklahoma. It's called the General Baptist Convention of Oklahoma. And it's something I'm fairly, you know, pretty familiar with growing up in Oklahoma. Went to their church camps and everything. And yeah. uh, all my dad's churches growing up, he's uh, a retired Baptist minister. They were all BGCO churches, Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. They actually released a open letter to the state of Oklahoma. Some of their leaders, the BGCO leaders, through the Baptist Messenger, which is a very influential pu- publication for Baptists in Oklahoma, in opposition to SB 13, in opposition to abolition. And their reasons were very much the same as the uh, Republican legislators who are denying SB 13. It's very much, we think it's going to get overturned by the courts, and we think it's going to overturn pro-life regulations so we can't support it. And it's just very, very disappointing. And frankly, I think pastors throughout all Oklahoma needs to put real pressure on their BGCO leaders or just leave it right yeah what does the church need to be doing in terms of when it when it is speaking to civil magistrates we need to be exhorting them to righteousness we need to be exhorting them to not pen iniquitous decrees what does it say in isaiah 10 woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey So we have to fight this war in such a way as to win the war. Right. We actually have to aim at the goal if we're ever going to get the goal. Right. And if I was in favor of abortion and I was thinking strategically about this and I wanted abortion to never end, I would want to lull the other side into a false sense of victory with a never ending string of small battles that are, quote, won at all the points of conflict that ensured the war was never actually in jeopardy of being lost. Yeah. And that's what's going on. It's a classic case of Christians getting the breadcrumbs from the world when it's supposed to be. It's our table. It's our food. Jesus has prepared it. Why are we 
That, why, why is it that they're not trying to ask, what are the Christians up to today? Right. Because yeah. we don't care about justice. We don't care about righteousness in terms of the law and what it should reflect. We have instituted a pragmatic view of this. Like, so I've, I've heard the illustration be used, you know, if there's a burning building and um, there's 10 kids in the building, I can save four of them. I'm going to go ahead and save four of the children. Oh, the burning building yes. analogy. I've yeah. heard this for now, years in the yeah. pro-life movement. <laughs> now yeah. let's just, let's just deal with this head on. This analogy is an insufficient analogy. Let's step back a minute. How long have we been doing this for? Right. Over 40 years. Over 40 years. Coming and that's up on just since Roe versus years. Wade. Abortion was happening in individual states for decades and decades before. Right. And this entire time, what has been the strategy and the tactics of the pro-life movement? It has been incremental efforts to regulate the abortion industry. A series of, you could talk about dozens and dozens and dozens of measures passed in different states at different levels, uh, you know, trying to regulate access to abortions and make sure they have to view the sonogram. And um, and has anyone in that time actually submitted a bill of pure abolition? Maybe it's happened a few times. Yeah, right? Oklahoma a few years ago, Texas a few years ago, and, and right now in Oklahoma. Right. But the biggest obstacle to these bills getting passed is the pro-life movement undercutting them by sowing fear into people, by this fiction that the that the states have to follow the ruling of the Supreme Court on this matter. Right, exactly. And, and earlier, Jordan, you mentioned in a very charitable, charitable way about Phil Johnson and Todd Friel. It's like, we're going to call them good brothers. We're going to call them like good intentions. Obviously, yes, there are lots of pro-lifers as well who have good intentions. Yes, there is. They're good people. They're Orthodox Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm also pretty dang familiar with the pro-life movement at this point in time. And I will tell you, it is a fact that there are a lot of professional, full-time pro-life leaders. I'm not talking about necessarily the mass of people, but professional right. pro-life leaders who are utterly ethically compromised. Yeah. yeah. Like, utterly. Yeah. And the whole burning building thing, look, the, the burning building is a terrible analogy because the problem is this isn't an accidental house fire. These are arsonists who are burning houses down. Right. And we keep playing catch up instead of actually stopping right dead in the tracks with the law of God, you know, th this whole problem. Then you don't have houses on fire. Yep. So we, we just keep playing catch up when really the arsonists should come to the door and see us armed with a 45 cal and they should be asking us, what, what are we, what are we doing uh, here? Exactly. And I've actually heard some criticism of abolitionism and mediatism. They say, you know, they'll, they'll kind of misquote RJ Rush Jr. a little bit and say, we need uh, regeneration and not revolution. Or they'll say we need reformation and not activism. And they'll use these kind of little phrases. But, and the thing is, I, I agree with the phrases in a sense. But the argument doesn't actually work in their favor. If we're actually arguing for reformation and we understand that this is a fight for the heart and the soul of our nation, this becomes a gospel message. This becomes a gospel-centered movement to abolish abortion. And the only way to do that is to actually treat abortion like murder. It's to actually treat abortion like sin. And we are teaching the nation iniquity. We are teaching the nation compromise every single time we support regulationism. We're telling the nation by our actions, 
not by our words, but by our actions, that we do not believe abortion is murder. Amen. We cannot call the magistrates to a partial repentance. Exactly. Right. And this all really ties into the topic of the hour. We want to address social justice, because when you think about the abortion holocaust, you should also be thinking about unrighteousness in terms of our nation's history. We should be thinking soberly about uh, American chattel slavery, how we have systematically oppressed African Americans, black people in our nation for the, almost the all the entirety of our history, frankly, from 1619 all the way up. So, but hold on, the minute you start talking about that, what are you called? You're a Marxist. Right. You're right. a You're socialist. a leftist. Yeah. yeah. Just, you're an SJW. Mm-hmm a social justice warrior because suddenly you care about the oppressed suddenly you you know you care about issues in our society the weakest among us so we need to nail that down quickly because this whole bickering back and forth is is problematic and the reason really the reason we wanted to address this mostly is because a it's a foundational principle it's tied to current events this is not going to be the last time we've talked about social justice But a lot of this stemmed from just a couple of months ago, there was a statement put out, the statement on social justice in the gospel, men like John MacArthur, um, what's the gentleman, he's a pastor in in Florida, Tom, is it Ascol? Yeah. A-S- That's right. C-H-O-L, and others who formulated a statement on social justice and its relation to to the gospel. Now, what did you guys think of that? Well, I mean, just... The statement included a lot of unobjectionable unobjectionable things just because the nature of the statement, they had a lot of uh, statements about, you know, uh, what the, you know, who Jesus Christ is and these sorts of ABC Christianity things that that we would agree with much of those simple things. But the, the purpose of the statement, I think, failed because typically there's about two ditches that you're going to fall in in this whole approach to the social justice discussion. Either you're going to approach the discussion from taking the law of God and throwing it in the backseat of the car and calling for justice. And and you just completely get rid of the law of God and you're finding, defining it on humanistic terms, paganistic terms, what have you. The other is, the other ditch is to just sort of no holds bar, th- throw justice completely out of the mission of the church, out of a definitional component of the gospel to where it has temporal justice has nothing to do with the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom. And this is where at the fundamental point, not the peripheral of the statement, at the fundamental point of the statement, it defined justice in temporal, specifically temporal justice as not a definitional component of the gospel. It defined the great commission as not having to do with quote, social activism. Well, what is social activism? We have to understand what you mean by that. If you mean going to the magistrate and saying, hey, Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven on earth, repent. We call you to repent specifically on the authority of Christ of uh, your pro-abortion stance. Are you not engaging there in a form of social activism? Are you not engaging in a form of preaching the gospel? In the name of Christ, all authority in heaven has been given to him Repent. Repent of what? As soon as you get a repent of what, then you're talking about a form of social activism. And so on those points, I couldn't sign the statement. Right. None of us did. 
We no. didn't sign the statement. We had um, tremendous problems with that. Exactly what you said, Jordan. There's this dualistic, frankly, this divorced idea that the gospel is merely couched inside soteriological terms. Right, exactly. So it's just how you get to heaven. It's just how you, you know, justification by faith. We Every year we have our huge reform conferences, and what do we talk about? The milk of the word. How, how to get to heaven. How to get to heaven. How we need to defend justification by faith. Absolutely, we agree with that. Right, exactly. And we could go line by line, and we could spend a lot of time on, the, on, on this statement, but I'll just read one very short segment on, on what on their gospel segment. And they say, and I quote, we deny that anything else, whether works to be performed or opinions to be held can be added to the gospel without perverting it into another gospel. So my question would be, what was the gospel that Christ Jesus actually preached in the gospels? Cause he called that the gospel of the kingdom. Right. Right. I'm wondering, is that a different gospel? Is that perverting the gospel? Now, of course, I'm not saying that the gospel isn't substitutionary atonement. What I'm saying is that Paul agrees with Jesus. Yes. Amen. And they don't disagree. That's the Amen. huge, that's the center of it, frankly, because you have Paul, for example, we, we go to Romans. It's this deep theological letter. It's very, it's very good. And we, we amen to it. But then you don't have Jesus necessarily laying out, you know, this aspect of justification by faith of course and, and it and in the it, same way right i mean he lives it out in the gospels and of course on the cross and and so that is the defining aspect of the gospel that makes everything else move it is like the turning point of history it is the engine that moves the car we cannot understate the importance of substitutionary atonement however that car needs to move yeah. as well yeah it's foundational, but you don't call it a house once you have the foundation. Absolutely. You, yeah. you need the whole thing. You need a roof on that thing and, and walls and a nice door. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's so let's let's think about this a little bit more. What then? Because you, you guys have heard this before. I've heard it all the time. We're, our job is not to change the culture. That's not our task. The mission of the church, the mission of the local church is to make disciples and get them, you know, into your church. We've all heard that hundreds and hundreds of times. It's still perpetuated as if the mission of the church is solely to get people into the activities of your church, whether that's programs or whatever. And maybe those are good things. Maybe you have Bible studies where you are digging in. Praise God. Fine. We're not criticizing that per se. But what we've done is truncated the whole picture of the gospel. So how does it how does it relate? Let's let's dig into that some more. What is that? If the, you said earlier, Jordan, you brought up the Great Commission. What do we do with that? Yeah, I think we need to go back to looking at the Bible as a whole. It's not the New Testament and the Old Testament, two Bibles. We need to look at the Bible as a whole. It's a whole unfolding story. And what do you have in the prophets when they're talking about what the gospel is? And what were the uh, apostles in the early church? What was the message that they were bringing? They were bringing the gospel of the kingdom. And so when we read passages like Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, you know, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is a picture of good news. The justice that Christ brings 
both eternally, the Lord is our righteousness, and temporally, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, are both parts of the good news of the gospel. So when the, when the disciples were going out, they were proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's here. Now, is it fully realized yet in terms of has it been manifested? Has, have the nations been footstooled? Have they been discipled? No, that's what the Great Commission is right. all about. There's, a, there's an already not yet concept right. there. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But people will gladly take that famous verse in Jeremiah as, yeah, that's a good description of the gospel. But you got to read the whole passage. You got to read what the context of, of what this is. And let me just read this to you. Thus says the Lord, and this is prior to verses before Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. This is in chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, go down in the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the kings of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, and surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord thus dealt with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, their God, and worshipped other gods and served them. So the Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 is the answer to that. So that's why it says, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He'll reign and deal wisely and she'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. Yeah. So when we talk about, you asked about originally, the long answer, about the Great Commission. When we're talking about the Great Commission, we are now doing that work of footstooling the nations, causing the nations to be discipled by the proclamation of the gospel, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, as the church goes out to every nation under heaven and teaches the nations to disciple them to obey God's law. And that includes rulers. Mm-hmm. That includes civil Amen. law. It's really beautifully cohesive, just theologically speaking, right. because it's not just spiritual, it's not just temporal. Just like God did not create just our spirits and just our bodies, it's both. So what we do is, whenever you embrace this non-truncated gospel that does focus very tightly on the cross, but also the implications of the cross, and, and, and our requirements to like how we actually follow after Christ, how Christ actually goes about redeeming all things, mm-hmm. we, we, we steer away from this Gnostic dualism mm-hmm. that only focuses on half of the nature of creation. And it is interesting, yes. that passage you read from Jeremiah 22, the word covenant was mentioned toward the end. Mm-hmm. A lot of, for whatever reason, and I'm not gonna pick on any one group in particular, but a lot of times, especially in dispensationalism or even some versions of a Baptist theology, you're not going to pick on any groups, well, but I those mean, dispensationalists, I'm going to, no. you know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to throw them no, all I, in I together. Get it. Well, I, I just want to use it as an illustration because a lot of times we don't see the connection between the gospel and the covenant because what you read was covenantal sanctions yes. against an apostate Israel. You know, Jeremiah earlier in Jeremiah seven, he's told to go stand in front of the temple and y'all, you, you, you know, you brothers and sisters, you say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Well, God will bring it down. Mm-hmm. And, and he did. And he did. 
several times. Yeah. So God's covenantal sanctions are uniquely tied to the gospel because really the cross isn't the ultimate sanction. Jesus takes on all of the burden of our sin and, and he's cursed on a tree, Galatians tells us. But yeah, in that same moment, there's mercy, there's grace given to us. Amen. Yeah. So, so we actually get the benefits of the covenant by faith. Amen. So, absolutely. Speaking of covenant, the very first book I've ever read on covenant theology was from uh, Dr. Robinson, O. Palmer Robinson, Christ yeah. of the Covenants. Great very book. famous book on covenant theology. And this is what he had to say about the gospel. He said a lot of things, but I'll quote him real quick. He said, It is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel, however, must not be conceived of in the narrowest possible terms. It involves discipling men to Jesus Christ. Integral to that discipling process is the awakening and awareness of the obligations of man to the totality of God's creation. Amen. That's huge. Yes. It's huge. So justice interpersonally, justice, familial justice, justice in the family, and justice in society or right. social justice. Justice. Oh no! Okay. You said it. You said it again. No, no. What? But, but the Bible, though. Does the Bible ever use the term social justice? No, I don't think it does. So we might as well just throw it out, oh. right? Well, might as well. Well, don't get too far ahead. Wait, the Bible does use <laughs> adjectives, though, right? When we talk about justice, it does use. Adjectives. I think. It, I think it is okay to use adjectives, and I don't know. How well, f- let's talk about that before we're going to take a break here in a minute. Let, why do we? Need, why do we need to be okay with adjectives? Why is that important? I think we need to be okay with adjectives, just generally speaking, when we're talking about theology, because the Bible makes distinctions that are clear whenever you read the context. So whenever we go back and we talk theology, whenever we write articles or preach sermons or write theology books, it's good to make the same distinctions that Scripture makes, even if Scripture isn't using a distinctive yeah. term for that. And just before we it's go, the to- same reason why we use the word penal in front of penal substitutionary atonement. The Bible never uses the term penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. And, and just before we go to break, like yeah. reform theologians, when we look at the different kind of uh, categories for the law, we talk about the civil law, we talk about the ceremonial law, right. we talk about the moral law. These are all adjectives. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the threefold distinction of the law. That is not lined out in scripture in like a super clear ABC format, but it is there and it's useful. Right. Wow. We have so much more to unpack on that. Adjectives. We love adjectives. A lot <laughs> we love of clarity. We lo- yeah. And that's what we want to do. We want to be clear on this topic. We don't want to just get into the shouting match. Oh, you're a socialist. You're a Mar- Marxist. You're this, that, and the other. Let's define those things. When we come back, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about the philosophy of Marxism, sort of lay those foundations, and then talk about justice in society, social justice. Let's so, get after it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back in a minute. If you want to check out our Facebook page, you can do that. Cross and Crown Radio. You can find us there. But uh, yeah, just a second. We will be right back. It just seems the blind privilege. Wouldn't you agree? Your precious Puritans. They looked my onyx and bronze skin forefathers in their face. Their polytheistic, God-hating face. That shackled, diseased, imprisoned face. And taught a gospel that said that God had multiple images in mind when he created us in it. Therefore, destined salvation contains a contentment in the stage for which they were given, which is to be owned by your forefathers' superior image-bearing face. 
says your precious Puritans. And my anger towards this teaching screams of an immature doctrine and a misunderstanding of the gospel. I should be content in this stage, right? Isn't that what Paul taught? According to your precious Puritans. Oh, you get it, but you don't get it. Oh, then we can go back to an America that once were founded on Christian values. They don't build preachers like they used to. How many books do you know of that address topics of education and welfare, local government, state government, taxation, money and banking, free markets, courts, war and the military, and the executive power? How many books do you know? actually talk about these topics from a biblical perspective and set forth all of the issues, the ideas, the history, and the hurdles, and the blueprints for the way forward. Hi, I'm Joel McDermott with AmericanVision.org. In Restoring America One County at a Time, I cover all these topics and more, showing you how America was once free, how those freedoms were lost, and giving you an uncompromising biblical approach to get those freedoms back. I focus on practical steps, local solutions, personal sacrifices, and it has a multi-generational vision. So don't just sit around talking about Restoring America. Actually do something. And you can start by getting my book, Restoring America One County at a Time, at AmericanVision.org. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf, or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 11 through 18. Amen. And that includes you, Bernie, and Donald Trump, and AOC. Everybody. Everybody. Well, hey, welcome back to Crossing Crown Radio. Really, when we talk about the issue of social justice, we're just going to dive right into this because what we want to do is explain what we mean. Too many times these conversations are heated and emotions are flying tweets are you know <laughs> just jumping out at you everywhere because so and so said this we want to define our terms and be as clear as we can so let's just let's start there yeah absolutely we must start there because as you're saying there's just so much noise people just flamboyantly demonizing and condemning you know everybody on every side so i want to start with what the gospel is uh, one of my favorite books is it's called Productive Christians in an Age of Ga- uh, Guilt Manipulators. It's by David Chilton, and he, he defined the gospel this way. I want you to keep this in mind. This book is a 
absolute destruction of socialism. Yes, it is. A destruction of socialism. Highly recommended. He also destroys other socialistic endeavors like strict immigration policies, which is a different episode, but he's very consistent. Mm -hmm. And he defines the gospel this way. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is not merely the bare message of how to be justified before God or of how to go to heaven. It is the whole counsel of God concerning our salvation in Christ, including his lordship over us and his commands for every aspect of our lives. Thus, the gospel message involves a call to repentance from ungodly economic and political practices and the explanation of what God demands in these areas. The Roman emperors were designated Savior, Lord, and God. The application of those titles by the early church to Jesus Christ constituted a declaration of war on the cult of statism. Mm -hmm. The gospel is the whole teaching of scripture as it affects all of life and is centered on Jesus Christ as Lord. That is what we believe the gospel is. Yeah. And you get people that will say, well, that you never saw the apostles running around trying to change policy. You never saw Paul go to the emperor and beg for a, you know, abortion law. Most of the apostles are running around trying not to be, murdered by Romans trying to not die yes but but again as Chilton's quote says the heart of the gospel is Jesus is Lord and that's what they said over and over and over again and that wasn't just sort of a nicety you know a bumper sticker slogan this was like he said a declaration of war this was Jesus Christ is king you must obey him absolutely and Jordan said it really well last week and you should go re-listen to that episode but talking about why the romans persecuted the christians it was a highly polytheistic culture they don't care frankly if we call jesus god they don't care what they do care if we say your emperor is not god right and Mm -hmm. our jesus is king and you're that's what they care about yeah Yeah. and your emperor is obligated to obey this greater king right Right. absolutely and in the image on the coin caesar's made in god's image he must obey christ just as the coin was to go back to him right right absolutely so that's what we believe the gospel is yes just like we were saying substitutionary atonement it's central it's central but the gospel applies to all of life. Yeah. So that's the foundation. We're going, to, we're going to build the house. So in this house, we have things like justice. We have things like mercy. We have things like grace. We have the atonement of Christ, the centrality of his substitutionary suffering and his resurrection, him being established as Lord in his ascension. All of that constitutes a robust gospel. We have a big, it's a big house. It's a beautiful house. Let's not just talk about the foundation. Let's glory in these other things like his establishment as as king and as Lord. So let's move from there. That's We've sort of established the foundation of the gospel. Let's build on that. What do we mean? We brought up the adjectives earlier. We like adjectives. They're important. They help us distinguish between you know multiple things and definitions because Jesus owns the dictionary. Words are important. Social belongs to, to Jesus. Justice belongs to Jesus. Social justice belongs to Jesus. W- but what do we mean by that? What are we talking about? I would say that on the basis of the Great Commission, we do want to teach the nations to obey all of God's law and in every realm. And so when we talk about justice, as I said before, we want justice to teach justice in the family. 
interpersonal justice. And we also want justice in society. And that's what I mean by social justice, justice according to the standard of God's law in society. It's very simple. Yeah. Um, now let's be very clear. So what we are not going to gloss over is that in society today, there are many, many nefarious forces who want to implement under the guise of what they call social justice, a evil anti-God's law system. Um, if we want to go br briefly into the origins of this in our modern context, you have uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was an Italian Marxist philosopher, and he was like a communist politician. And he wrote on you know political theory and sociology um, and those kinds of things. And he was trying to break from the economic determinism of Karl Marx. I know you're going to talk about this in a second. But he wanted to implement socialism by what he called the Great March through the cultural institutions. So this would be the universities. This would be the entertainment industry. All of these institutions that he wanted to awash in... Um, in, in socialism, okay? And uh, what he wanted to do was he wanted to t bring down those institutions that were sort of uh, at least in name Christian. And he wanted, he thought that the, the only way in America to bring about the socialism that he wanted was to tear down these cultural institutions. So though we are calling for social justice, justice in society, we're not, you know, unaware of these nefarious forces but because the, the gospel, because God owns the concept of justice in all of its places, in all of its spheres, we are not going to say we can't use the term justice in society or social justice. No, we're going to, we're going to continue to use that term. And, and you know what else we're not going to do? We're not going to, if somebody doesn't want to use that term for tactical reasons, we're not going to anathematize them. And we're not going to act like, you know, they're evil or something. And we would just simply ask the same. Right. You know, if we are going to use that term, we're, we're going to ask that you treat us like, like we would, we're going to be treating you, you know. And, and listen to the definitions. Don't right. just slap the Marxist label on it. Right. Or the oxymoronic phrase cultural Marxism. Right. But, but the key, so let's, we're talking about presuppositionalism. Not mm. a lot of times we talk about presuppositional apologetics, but presuppositionalism is a beautiful doctrine in scripture. And basically what we're saying with social justice is very simple. This is God's world. He owns this term. It's his. So what Christians often do, though, is they think, well, well, social justice is in, in John MacArthur in his sermon on this issue very beginning of the message, he said, social justice is just a term of socialism. Now, right. they've commandeered the term mm -hmm. because we've not talked about it. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying here today is that that phrase belongs to Jesus Christ because he is Lord over all. He's Lord right. over words right. and definitions. All of this has meaning because Jesus has imputed it to it. It's his creation. Right, absolutely. And, and these words are important. Obviously, the meanings behind the words are more important, but we shouldn't give up like the rhetorical high ground. And this is this is why you can have <laughs> like Democrats who don't care about democracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> this is this is why we can have, uh, uh, you know, people who talk about liberty, but have no understanding of liberty. 
Right. It doesn't make any sense. Or liberals. Let's just talk about the term liberal has nothing to do with liberty. Right. At all. Yeah. And when you think about the problems that we face in our society, when you think about the $22 trillion of, of, of debt, you think about, um, immigration, you, any of these issues, abortion, you name it, institutional racism in the forms of, of, um, the criminal justice system. Yeah. Criminal justice and police. All of that is not the result of a failure of free markets, mm-hmm. which is fully um, coherent in God's law. Like that's what it teaches. It's a failure of capitalism and socialism trying to work together. They are mutually exclusive ideologies. They don't work. They are isms that don't. They don't they work together. They don't work together. Yeah. Right. You you can't mix them and accept, but actually think that capitalism is still to blame. Right. Right. And, and, and talk about the public school system where I am being taxed to fund someone else's education. It's being stolen from me. Speaking of socialism and Marxism, the public <laughs> education system. There you go. The planks of the communist, mes- um, communist and, manifesto. And this is, this is one reason why I think it is important to talk about social justice. Or honestly, if you don't like the term, that's fine. Just like you were saying, Pastor Carwood, you... <laughs> cannot like the term because of strategy or because you think it's been drugged through the mud too much, but it's okay to use adjectives. So if you want to call it civil justice, call it civil justice. Just be clear about what you mean. And the reason why I think it's important is because there are so many teachers, so many pastors, so many writers that will frankly talk about justice, but only the most vague way possible. Mm -hmm. And it's always abstract. It's always a thousand feet in the air it never touches ground it never affects the here and now it never affects our lives and they can rail and rail and rail against marxism and socialism while they send their kids to like public school right huge inconsistency (laughs) it's a huge inconsistency while john MacArthur is doing rallies in his church for police departments right he's also railing against socialism yeah like what's the deal yeah it's incoherent. And the reason it's incoherent is because we have not grounded all of this in God's law. That's the bottom line. When we talk about justice, it has to be in terms of, of God's law. The passage I read from Leviticus is, is pretty clear about how we should treat the poor, how we should treat the oppressed. And now suddenly I'm a Marxist, right? Because I'm <laughs> speaking of economics. <laughs> I'm not saying the state needs to strong arm everybody, st- steal their money, and then we you know, have this great bloated welfare system. No, that, that's unrighteous. We don't need any more of that. We need that to go away, frankly, because charity belongs to the church, to, to the family, to Christians. Um, but all of this is centered really on, on these faulty, um, how, how do you want to say it? There's these faulty presuppositions. Mm-hmm. To, to defend the public school system and rail against socialism. Right. Uh, w- and rail against, we need a closed border, which is a socialist policy. Right. These people don't even know what socialism is. Right. And I think it's part of the problem. They don't have a firm understanding of just the very basic biblical concepts of just weights and measures. They do not have a good, firm understanding of the biblical concept of theft. But then they roll in a rail against socialism, but only the kind of socialism that is associated with the Democratic Party, but not the socialism associated with the Republican there you Party. Go. Exactly. And that is autonomy. Yeah, because yep. we see guys like the Tim Kellers of the world who are calling for what they call social justice, but through the vehicle of socialism. And we understand that that is a very 
strong danger that needs to be repudiated and rebuked. It's against God's law. We, we will have none of that. But at the same time, do we have our own pet areas where we sort of coddle socialism in our own backyard and in conservatism and what's acceptable within conservatism? I think the answer to that is absolutely. And so if you are faithfully calling for true biblical justice in society, true biblical social justice, there's going to be people you're offending on both sides. And if you're only if only offending the Tim Kellerites of the world, then you're not balanced. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And let's take a minute to, to explain the whole Marxism thing, because I, I just um, finished Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. I'm a Marxist. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody's going to take that and make it a little clip. I'm a Marxist yeah. <laughs> um, because I care about the history of our country and how wicked we have treated blacks. Yeah. Or, or Joel McDermott's book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. Highly recommend that book. But, you know, suddenly guys like him, they're, they're being attacked. They're SJWs. Right. That's, that reminds me, I, I wrote a few articles for American Vision several months ago talking about racism in the church and just a very, very, frankly, basic understanding that we should actually preach against uh, racial injustices and racial prejudices. <laughs> and people with like uh, uh, social media pictures of dead Civil War generals fighting for the South. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that crowd of people called me like a white hater and a social justice warrior and a liberal and all these different invectives. And I didn't even mention the term social justice, yeah. didn't mention socialism, didn't mis- mention, um, you know, yeah. anything like that. Just because I said something against racism automatically i'm a liberal right and yeah just we have to understand the humanists are going to from a tactical standpoint they're coming at at this like they want to draw the lines of battle like it's those who want to head back to sort of a modern version of the confederacy versus those who want sort of this new future on the glorification of man as god and so they want those to be the two sides. And if you're not on their side, then you're like on the Confederacy headed back to make America great again, meaning like during the you know pre-Civil War days. And really, it's an effective ploy, right? But faith for all of life Christians have to reject this false dichotomy yeah. and not play into the, their hands. Christians own justice, not the world, right? We're, we're not fighting for a future where we gloss over and repeat the mistakes of the past, the racism, the institutional racism in the past and, and, and currently um, institutional racism that plays out still today in society, at, at the very least in the effects that it has. I mean, you look at the you know, the criminal justice system, the, the prison system, the drug war, the yeah. welfare state, all of these things. So, you know, in order to reject that whole dichotomy, we have to draw our own line, which is calling for biblical justice, not a return to some like quasi Christianity that sort of has some biblical law and is infested with major problems. Absolutely. We need to we need to rebuild society. We need to reconstruct society on biblical law. Right. right. And before we get to Marxism proper, one thing that I've oftentimes heard. Uh, from different commentators, is that the social justice warriors, the social justice theonomists, and call us like, you know, decons or whatever yeah. they want to call us, uh, th- they want to make this very, very strict distinction between mercy and justice. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that there is a distinction, but it's a distinction with a lot of overlap concerning where we are today as society. Because we have a nation with literally thousands of unjust laws, 
to be just to people today oftentimes means repealing lots and lots of bad legislation, lots of bad legislation. So yes, education does have to do with justice. Like welfare does have to do with justice. Immigration does have to do with justice. The Justice Department has something to do with justice. It's in the title. All, <laughs> all of these things have to do with justice. And what we personally do for those who are perhaps homeless on the street or needing food or, or somebody who is a victim of uh, prejudice or, you know, fill in, the, fill in the gap or there, whatever the situation may be, those are acts of mercy. But because we are in a very unjust society that oppresses them systemically and just by our unjust laws, it is a matter of justice to repeal those and actually build a society that is fair, that's actually not oppressing people because of these vast amount of unjust regulations that makes it difficult for even private individuals to help others. I mean, people have been arrested for feeding the homeless. Right. Like, think about that for a moment. People are being arrested for feeding the homeless at times. Yeah. And you, you, can't, you can't have sojourners or immigrants staying in a church building because of zoning laws. I mean, we can go on all night long about example after example after example of things that we've generally associated with mercy. But because of where we are, it's actually also a matter of justice. Mm. Now, you, you said something there that triggered me and probably all of our listeners, John. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you didn't catch this, but you said something about fairness. <laughs> right, right. Fairness. No, but hold on. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, people have their lot in life, right? I mean, that's <laughs> just what... I mean, the, the Negro race is clearly you know, inferior to the white race, right? That's the argument of the slaveries, the, the slaveholders, right? That was the argument then. You have your lot in life. Some of you are your just going to be homeless. Why do we got to deal with that? What is this talk of fairness? Why would you speak of things being fair when clearly, you know, some of us are going to be brain surgeons and some of us aren't? Well, Let's talk about it. presuppositions, <laughs> obviously being facetious here, because the, the reality is God's law is the great equalizer. That's right. Right? It's the great equalizer. God's law is the thing that brings everyone down to the proper position of a, as a creature made in the image of God who owes their allegiance to Jesus Christ. So that's when we say fairness, we mean it not in the Marxist sense, which we'll come back to in a second. We mean Equal under God's law. Right. God's law does not True. show partiality. True justice for all. Not redistribution of wealth, but obligation of you as a neighbor to your neighbor. What are your obligations before God's law? Yeah. And all of this, when we think presuppositionally, because the thing that frustrates me the most is you have all these folks who, especially whether it's in the reform community, evangelical community, the minute you start talking about justice, social justice, fairness, um, dealing with the welfare state, immigration, all of this stuff, immediately they're going to call you a Marxist. And it's frustrating for me personally because half these people haven't even read Marx. They don't know no. what he says. It's just sort of a, a catchword. Ah, you're the, you're the Marxist. You're the socialist. You're the commie. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of, and this is a stereotype, so I apologize to anybody who has blue hair, but I'm talking about <laughs> the blue hair ultra feminist on like the college campus, let's say Berkeley or something, that's yeah. just screaming in a street preacher's face, racist, 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 racist. It is the same thing. Yeah. So if you're using terms like Marxist 
on social media or in person just to frankly demonize somebody and shut them up, you're no better. Yeah. You're no better. And racism is real. Marxism is real. But let's apply these terms accurately. Yeah. That's a great point. You're no better. And frankly, you're making a mockery of God's law because we're defining our terms. Marxism, all of this. So we can get into this. I don't want to get too far. But for Marx, when when he he was a rough individual, um, he he had issues with his health. There was a whole lot going on with him anyway. But he looked around the world and he saw the world through the lens of class warfare. Right. The bourgeoisie, the proletariat. Um, you had this upper class who was oppressing the lower class. Uh, everything was economical. And part of that was built on his particular philosophy, which he flipped around he- the Hegelian dialect. Um, basically, Hegel said, you know, we start everything with the mind and then, you know, what we think then shapes our world. Sort of the tabula rasa, right? This blank slate, um, Sartre would call it this, This we have our our... Um, essence precedes existence, right? So, or basically, the this this is getting into philosophy. But the idea is how do how does our relationship with spirit and matter work? How does how does our relationship and what we know? How do we know things? How does that relate to the world around us? Marx flipped it on its head and said, "No, everything has to start first with the material. So, matter precedes thought. So, all of all." All that we see around us shapes what we think and who we are. And he basically ran with this philosophy. And he, he said famously, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Marx was a revolutionary. He wanted to get the proletariat equipped to rise up, to revolt this revolutionary change of justice for, for people which is just viciously circular because if the proletariat becomes the bourgeoisie, then the bourgeoisie becomes a proletariat. And now you've not solved anything. It's this endless cycle of revolution. <laughs> it is. It is. And Engels himself said, you know, all economics really overall is the foundational principle of historical development. That's what determines things. So in other words, you know, uh, culture for us, we would say culture is religion exter- externalized, right? We would say our faith um, comes to fruition in the world around us. But for the Marxists, it's not. It's all purely material. It's a closed universe. There is no God. We just have to figure it out on our own. So we need economic justice. We need all of that to happen, and we need it to happen now. Um, this is basically the whole dialectic problem of, again, spirit matter, the one and the many. But But all of this for Marx, philosophy was just way too much in the head, not enough time dealing with tangible real-world issues. That's different from our worldview, right? It's different from Christianity. We, it's an open universe. God is sovereign over it, and he's the one who brings his justice to the world mm-hmm. through his son, who has been established on Zion as king. So when people talk about Marxism, we want to acknowledge that, yes, there is a major... Marxist impulse that is a God-hating impulse. It, it is it is bent on socialism, um, the idea of the government needs to grow bigger to help solve the problems. When the government solves the problems, then we have justice, and therefore everything's all right. But we want none of that. So we agree, for example, with like Walt Tisby's book here. Like a lot of the history is really great history. He did. I thought he did a great job parsing through a very complex subject 
in, in, in honing in on some of the key details of how and why the church was complicit, which isn't hard to believe given the complicity in the abortion Holocaust, right. what we talked about earlier. So, but what we can't do is then think we're going to fix these symptoms of a socialist society with more socialism. Amen. We can't fund, get, the answer is not funding the public schools with more and more money. Our, our, our local school here wants more money. It's like, where are you getting it? So we have to be careful. Yes, there are those who are using social justice, who do have a Marxist worldview, who who don't understand, you know, basic biblical principles of God's creation in the world. They just, they live in God's world. They can't help but borrow from our worldview. They can't help but, you know, express themselves in ways that they should be doing it in a way that's consistent with God, but they don't know how. They're blind, they're deaf, they're dumb. That's what idols do to you. But for us, the, the whole Marxist thing, if you simply hear social justice, you read a tweet about racial injustice, you know, I think of Eric Garner and Flando Castile and all of these men who were basically brought to, to death by either a police officer shooting them on the spot, he's the executioner too now, or Eric Garner who was choked to death by a cop who was able to get off free. You have these injustices, and, and Christians can't just go and say, oh, that's a Marxist ideology. It's frankly irresponsible. It's really frustrating. Yeah. And you wonder why there's still a divide between blacks and whites, particularly Christian blacks and Christian whites, because we have a lot of Christian whites who don't understand the oppression. They don't understand the history. We just sort of want to brush it under the rug. That was then. That was slavery then. Martin Luther King, oh, he's been dead for a long time. Well, all these people, they actually do want to talk about history. But they're very selective about what history they talk about. Exactly. Yeah. They'll write books on history. They'll blog about history. They'll preach sermons on history. But when you bring up slavery, they don't really want to talk about history anymore. Yeah. Suddenly, Let's move forward. Suddenly, Let's not get stuck in the ditch. It's in the past. Right. And that's, and that's the thing because, you know, whether it's Tisby or McDermott with his book, Problem Slavery, Christian America, like I fundamentally agree with, with this approach to this whole issue is we need to first, if we want to move forward, we got to start with properly assessing the past, both the victories and the failures. Like we can't go on, go along and think that, uh, you know, American chattel slavery was essentially biblical and then think we're going to char- charge forward into theonomy in the future. We're going to fail. Right. Right. We need to make a, a determination on the past before and we need to repent of we need to repent of what our whatever our designation of a of a specific uh, uh, issue in the past, which was unbiblical, which is against God's law. We need to reject that. So, if you look at the in the prophets, uh, many times Israel kept stubbing its toe because it tried to move forward while not getting rid of the high places. These old cultural artifacts of idolatry that they had in their past, and they just kept and they, and you know the prophets kept making a note of it. Such and such king, he did this right, this right, this right, but he didn't get rid of the high places, and so this you know, continued to happen. And um, w- what some people want to do, as, as you alluded to, they just want to charge forward into, you know, let's forget about the past selectively. Let's forget about the past and let's just move forward. No, we got we to gotta assess the, the failures and the victories of the past. we got to repent of our idolatry. We've got to chart the course forward 
and then we have to execute the plan according to God's law. And that's where I think Tisby falters. Yeah. Where he gets to the execute the plan and chart the, the course forward, and the law of God goes in the back seat. Right. Yeah. And this is what happens whenever you divorce justice from theonomy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, it's and, dangerous. And a, and a lot of times our non-theonomic friends who are just reformed libertarians, but not theonomic, they'll have a firm idea of economics and so on and so forth. And they'll come, you know, in a very similar position as God's law, but not everybody's going to have that. So what happens is when you ever reject theonomy, you could either be okay mm-hmm. or you can go really, really wrong. Yeah. Right? Because as it turns out, when you're talking about natural law, oftentimes natural law is just, whatever you think the law is <laughs> yeah, or what, that's what natural what the majority of what's nations. natural to you law. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it becomes extremely subjective. So whenever you do reject the objective, no neutrality theonomy of God's law, you could go Tim Keller or you could go, you know, reformed libertarian. Yeah. And it really, really depends. But on theonomy's basis, mm-hmm. that is objective. And that is where you get true justice that's going to be consistent and real justice. Yeah, that's the key: consistency across the board. Right. Exactly. So we're not we're not materialistic determinists where we're only looking at the situation, and that guy doesn't have as much money as the other guy, so we're just going to give it to him. And it's deeply by force, deeply <laughs> presuppositional. And this is, you know, you, you've already m- mentioned this, but we cannot just adopt ideas from the world. Yeah. We can't do that. That would be worldly. That would be idolatrous. You know, truth is objective and it's from God's word. However, we should not be quick to reject things that the world agrees with because the world actually borrows from our worldview. It comes from God's law. It doesn't come from the world. And whenever you have this, frankly, really immature knee jerk reaction against whatever the world is for, that is you determining truth based on what you're opposed to. Yeah. It's you determining truth based on what the world hates, which is autonomy, not theonomy. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's why Republicans can't take the criticism because it's like, well, look at the left, look how far right. gone let's they about are. The, uh, I mean, we're not going to get into this much, but like, let's think about the me too movement. All of a sudden it's a liberal thing to do to talk about sexual right. uh, uh, scandals and sexual assault. It's all, all of a sudden a liberal thing to uh, talk about sexual abuse cover-ups in the church. All of a sudden it's a bad thing that Albert Moeller is actually finally standing up to C.J. Mahaney and the sexual, abu- uh, yeah. sexual abuse cover-ups. Yeah. And like, why is that a bad thing? I think it's because of this knee-jerk reaction because it's the world that cares about these things. Therefore, we can't. Yeah. And when we are looking at, and that's a great topic too, the whole issue of Me Too, an issue that can be similar to the social justice issue of uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, just because you know some liberal God-hating uh, feminist says Me Too doesn't mean that everything anybody's ever, ever argued from that whole movement has been wrong, right? But I just want to go back to real quick the issue of repentance and repentance for sins in the past. So yeah. just to be real clear, you cannot repent of someone else's sin. You can confess the sins corporately as a people. You know, we see that in Daniel, the book of Daniel. He's confessing the corporate sin of Israel, though he himself was not an idolater, right? But he, God sees... Um, God sees nations as well as individuals, yeah. right? So we can confess corporately as a nation, we have done X wrong, okay? 
Now, if your great-great-grandfather was in the Civil War, uh, great-great-great-grandfather, whatever, <laughs> was in the Civil War and, and uh, he was on the South and he was a slave owner and he, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you, you can't repent of his sin. But if you continue to have the same uh, wrong theology, wrong thoughts about God, wrong thoughts about how you are to love your neighbor according to God's law as he had, then you do need to re repent. You personally do need to repent for sharing in that same sin that led to, you know, the terrible, terrible atrocities of the past. And I just wanted to make that really clear. You cannot repent for someone else's sin, but you can confess sin corporately and you can own what your current, you know, perspective is and how it, how it, is a departure from God's law. Yeah. No, I, I agree that that oftentimes becomes confused where you have modern day slavery apologists who agree completely with R.L. Dabney, for example. Right. And then they say, well, I can't repent of slavery. It's like, no, no, I'm telling you to repent of your slavery advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or let's yeah. go one further. You know, slave owners should not have been welcome in the church. Right. They should have been excommunicated. And, and as the RPCNA did, the Irish Covenanters of is an entire denomination went before the general assembly and men like Thornwell and Dabney threw them out basically and said, get out of here. Right. Uh, because what they wanted to do is they wanted to take a stand on this issue of chattel slavery and not fellowship with slave owners. And they were right. Yeah, and, absolutely. And guess what? They didn't base their arguments on how American chattel slavery was wrong on humanistic arguments. They were going straight to the Bible. They were talking and, and you can read about, well, post a link to this, the show notes, you can read about these incredible biblical arguments that they're making of why American chattel slavery was not the same thing as what was going on in the Old Testament and what was going on in the Old Testament, um, how much of it was related to what was going on in the seven nations surrounding the land of Canaan. Yeah. And is not, even if it was going on then, doesn't give you license to do what they were doing back then. And so if people are arguing that the slavery, old slavery, American chattel slavery system of the South was only opposed by fanatics who were humanists and who hated scripture and hated God's law, they're not, they're either ignorant of history or they're not telling you the truth. Yeah, that's good. What you were saying, we're thinking covenantally. Amen. That's the huge thing about this. Thinking presuppositionally, thinking covenantally, but... Yeah, really, we could go on for hours on this topic. <laughs> I think we almost have. Yeah, but certainly a topic we're going to come back to, I'm sure, because this issue isn't going to go away. But in the meantime, we want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your encouragement. Um, we want to continue to drop episodes uh, each Monday for your enjoyment. You can find us on Facebook, Crossing Crown Radio. And also in your prayers and giving, consider working partnering with us, laboring with us in the kingdom, you can go to crosscrownchurch.com slash give. That's it for us. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. It was thank great you, stuff. Sir. No, thank you. Yes. And thank you, listeners. Plenty of thanks to go around. Thank you, Snowflakes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't leave them out. Oh, man. Hey, Jesus is king. Amen and amen. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't got you slipping up. Look how I'm living up. Police be tripping up. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like, yeah. I'm so cold like, yeah.
so dull, like, yeah. 